Okay, so last week we reviewed Matthew 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7. This week we're going to review chapters 8 through 14. Okay, so let's, uh, same format as last week. Ask questions, whoever has an answer can answer it. Uh, everyone's allowed to be involved. All right, let's start with the uh, first question I have for you here. Is it always God's will that people be healed? No. Okay, good. When it comes to God choosing to heal, to not heal someone, if He's chosen not to heal someone, is it always a matter of that person being in sin or having a lack of faith? No. Okay. When it came to Jesus healing the leper in Matthew 8, the leper said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Did Jesus correct him on his understanding and what he said? Are you willing to make me clean? Did he correct him on that? So when it comes to Jesus healing someone or not, is when, we, when we're trusting in him having faith, is it a matter of us having faith in his willingness or having faith in his ability? Yes, in his ability. His willingness will be determined by his own. He can determine whatever he wants. Now, there may be times where God says, I'm not going to heal you because you're in sin, or I'm not going to heal you because you have a lack of faith. But that's not always the case. And so the fact that Jesus didn't correct this man in Matthew 8, this leper, means that he, Jesus agreed with what he was saying. He said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Yes, if I am willing, I can make me clean. He said, yes, I am willing. Who are the uh, sons of the kingdom referred to in verse 12 of Matthew 8? who are going to be cast into outer darkness, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Disobedient sons, okay. But specifically, it's referring to the Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus. And we went to many different passages. We went to uh, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Matthew 22, uh, 21, 33 through 46, to show how God was going to take the kingdom from the Jewish people and give it to who? Well, not just the Gentiles. I mean, there's going to be Jewish people in the kingdom, but who, who is he going to give it to? A nation doing what? Pro a nation producing the fruit of it. Taken from them, because they weren't producing the fruit of the kingdom, and given to someone who will produce the fruit of the kingdom. <clears throat> Was Peter the apostle married? How do we know that? Because well, he had a mother-in-law. Yeah. Well, to have a mother-in-law, you have to be, you have to be uh, married, right? Okay. So is he qualified, according to Roman Catholic Church standards, to be a pope then? No, because the pope can't be married. Yes? Do you, uh, do you know when they made that standard? Not sure. No, I think it's been that way from the beginning, because they had popes. Now, of course, they would go back and say there was always a pope. But, but we know from, yeah, that's why like Peter's the first pope, but we know from history that, uh, that they didn't even begin to use that word until like the 6th century. And they used it event, uh, uh, originally of the Bishop of Rome, who they called Papa in Latin, or the Bishop of Bishops. And the church didn't really make that decision. Constantine kind of brought it to that point, and then it eventually became that. So he was the one who kind of made the guy at Rome, the head guy, 
because he was with he was with the king, and the the state and the church became uh, united at that point in time. But it wasn't until the sixth century that we see someone being called Pope or Papa. Versus what? Okay. Was Jesus rich with a big house and lots of earthly possessions? No. What did Jesus say that leads us to believe this? What did he say? Caitlin? That's right. That's right. He had no place to lay his head. He didn't own any house. He wasn't rich. And we do know that one of his disciples was stealing from him. All right. Uh, one of the demon-possessed men from Matthew 8, after he was the demons driven out of him, wanted to go with Jesus according to Mark's account of the story. He wanted to go along with Jesus. What did Jesus tell him to do instead? Jesus told him to go home and tell his friends what God had done for him. Did the man obey? Yes, in fact, he went further. It says that he didn't just go home and tell his friends, he proclaimed it in public to all of the Decapolis. That's from Mark's account of the story of Matthew 8, with demon-possessed men. What did Jesus drive the legion of demons out into? And why was that funny or ironic? That Jesus did that. And all these swines went off the cliff and died. Yeah? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they weren't supposed to be eating it, let alone raising it and selling it. And so... They rightly deserve that judgment from God. Okay, we're in Matthew 9 now. Um, what hindered the friends of the paralytic from getting the paralytic to Jesus? What's that? The crowd? No. No. That's right, nothing. Nothing hindered them. They even went through a roof to get the, their friend to Jesus. They want to take tiles off a roof to bring the paralytic, their friend, to Jesus. And what was the first thing that Jesus said to the paralytic? That's right. Your sins are forgiven you. And what did this prove when he said this? Yeah, who's the only person that can forgive sins? God. He proved that he was God in the flesh, but of course the, the Pharisees and people there didn't exactly believe that. They, that was one of their objections to it. But how did he go further and prove to them that he actually was the Son of God and God the Son of the flesh? By healing them. Get up, take your mat, and walk. What were the only two words Matthew, the author of this epistle, this gospel, needed to hear from Jesus in order to leave his job? Follow me. Two words. 
That's all he needed to hear. What did Matthew proceed to do next besides following him? What was that? He had a great feast at his house. Great feast at his house. He was at the feast. Tax collectors. All kinds of sinners. But who needs a physician? Not the well. That's right. When describing the new covenant, what did Jesus say about wine and wineskins? Why? The other way around, yes. Yes, very good. The new wine will break the old wineskins. Because what, is, what does wine do when it gets into wineskins? What does it do to the wineskin? Cause it to expand, right? If the old wineskins have already expanded and you put new wine in it, it's going to cause it to burst. Right. Can anyone explain the new covenant to me? Want to try? Went to Galatians quite a bit for this part. Who are you in when you're in the New Covenant? You're in Christ. That's right, you're in Christ if you're in the New Covenant. How does one get in Christ? Born again of the Holy Spirit. You have to repent. Trust in Christ's sacrifices. Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And who was this promise first given to? Well, there's one person in particular it was given to. Good, Jenna, what were you going to say? That's right. Abraham. It's good in Abraham. There's a law which was given 430 years later to make the other, make the promise given to Abraham null and void? No. And who, was this promise given to the Jews or to one person? The seed given to Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Now he had many seeds, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, all people came from the 12 tribes of Israel. He had lots of seeds, but this, this promise, was it conditional or unconditional for those people? Yeah, it's conditional. Upon what? Their obedience to it. That's right. And were they obedient? Who completely obeyed the law? So the only person who is going to receive this promise unconditionally is who? Yeah. And so for us to inherit what is promised, we have to be in who? And what is the, what is the inheritance? The land. So it's not some heaven up in the sky somewhere? We're all in spirit bodies the rest of our lives and they'll have a physical body? Where'd that idea come from? Yeah. So you don't go to heaven when you die. Where do you go if you were to die before Christ comes back? No, you go to Hades, would be the rancher, because everyone goes to Hades. 
Because if you're in the upper or lower part of Hades, right? Part of Hades is paradise, lower part of Hades is the temporary hell. But what is the final resting place of the saints? What's that? Yeah, new heaven and new earth is the final resting place of the saints. Will we be in bodily form? Yeah, our glorified body. What's the final resting place for the wicked? Hell, lake of fire. Yeah. Will they have a physical body there? Yeah, a glorified body just like us. It'll never die. Ever again. And so we have to get these things down because there's lots of people, and, and we have to, you know, I find myself doing this as well. I have to modify what I'm saying in the open air because I don't want people to think that they're going to go to heaven. I can say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, but they don't go to heaven when they die. No one goes to heaven when they die. People go to Hades when they die, but a final resting place even won't be heaven. Okay, so that, the new covenant is very important. How, how long did a woman bleed for before she was touched? Before she touched Jesus and was healed? How many years? Twelve years. That's right. How much of her own money did she spend trying to get better? All of it. All that she had. And when it comes to I already asked that question. Never mind. Um, what are the, some of the what are some characteristics of a good shepherd? Protect the sheep. Very good. But in their life, they're sacrificial. Yes. They guide the sheep. Take care of the sheep. Okay. What's part of taking care of them if they go astray? Seek them, and then they do what to them? Before they restore them, what do they do to them? Discipline them. Discipline the sheep. Discipline the sheep. What are some characteristics of a bad shepherd? Selfish, yep. They don't feed them. Or they're feeding the wrong stuff, at least. <laughs> they're cowards. Cowardly. When the when someone comes to destroy the sheep, do they stick around and be sacrificial? Or do they walk away. Yeah. What are they after? Money. Right. They're proud. They're selfish. They're proud. They're greedy. They're cowardly. Okay. Now we're on to Matthew chapter ten. All right. So we're in Matthew ten now. In our review, was Judas once truly a disciple follower of Jesus? How do we know this from Matthew 10? What is said in there that leads you to believe that? What's that? Okay. All right. Jesus said the Spirit will speak in you when you stand before kings. Right? What else was said there that leads us to believe that he was a true disciple, follower of Jesus from Matthew 10? He healed people, cleansed lepers, cast out demons, raised the dead. Right? What else? What was he called? A disciple, yeah. What else was he called? He was called a sheep, sitting on a sheep in the midst of wolves. He was called a servant. He was called a worker. We find all these things in Matthew 10.
How did Bartholomew die? Skinned alive, crucified, and beheaded. Yes. How did Peter die? Crucified upside down, that's right. How did John die? Old age, there you go. Natural causes, he was not murdered. But they tried to, many times. How did Judas die? And then what happened to him? And really, one of the reasons why that probably happened, that he burst asunder, is because when you hung yourself, that was, you were considered a curse. Uh, you know, all, we see throughout Galatians, cursed is he who's hung on a tree, and referring to Jesus, talking about the death penalty. And so he was, he was hung on a tree, and was, it was around the time of the Passover, so he was not to be touched. He was unclean to them. And so if you hang there for long enough, by your neck, what's going to happen? Go swollen up and... So... Yeah, they didn't even want to touch him. He was considered unclean. What parallel situation from the Old Testament fits the situation of Judas betraying Jesus? Close. Has to do with David. Nope. It's Psalm, Psalm 41, 19. David said, my... Uh, close companion, my friend, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus quoted that in John 13, 18. But who is he referring to? Starts with an A. His name was Ahithophel. He betrayed David. We went through that story quite a bit. We talked about that. But we see that in a parallel fulfillment... That from Psalm 41.19, David's talking about Ahithophel. Did David or anyone else know that there's going to be a fulfillment later on in life from that same verse? No, that's a called a parallel or type prophecy. Fulfillment. There's no way of knowing that. <clears throat> God knew it, but no one else knew it. If Jesus was persecuted and we are like him, what will happen to us? Same thing. What should we do with what is whispered in our ears? Yes, preacher from the housetops. Who should we fear according to Jesus in Matthew ten twenty eight? God and not who? That's right. Is hell really forever? What verses would you give to prove such a thing? Becoming a very popular idea. That prove that hell is really forever. Right, but where's that? This should be pretty close to the tip of your sword here. Your offensive weapon. Because this is becoming a more popular idea. And false years like Rob Bell are out there and other people like him. So... I'll give you one, Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Jesus says, and, and talking about the people who fed him and who visited him, etc., and who didn't, 
He said, and these, talking about those who didn't visit him, will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word translated everlasting and eternal there are the same word. So if you're not going to have everlasting punishment, guess what you're also not going to have? Everlasting life. Yes, brother. Matthew 18? No, I looked at Matthew 25, 46. What's yours, Brother John? Uh, Mark 9. Mark 9 versus what? 43, 44, 46, 47. Yes, Mark 9, 43 through 48. And what, what, what in Mark 9, 43 through 48 leads you to believe that that would prove uh, that hell is everlasting? Seems like a pretty useless fire if it's not burning something, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, anything else that you would use to... Matthew 18.8. Okay. Okay, yeah. Everlasting fire into hellfire. Now, people will try to say, be careful with this, they'll try to say the word everlasting there doesn't really mean everlasting. That's why you should have Matthew twenty five forty six right next in your mind. Because this is eternal life and everlasting hell. And they say, well, if you're not going to have everlasting hell, you're not going to have everlasting life either. So that's how you combat that. Now, th those other words that are used, like destruction sometimes when it comes to hell, how are you going to combat that? Well, destroy means they, they cease to exist. That's annihilationism. What verse are you going to use to combat that? Is there any verse that talks about everlasting destruction in the Bible? How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9? It talks about what Christ will do when, he'll come, when he comes back with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There's also scriptures in Revelation too. Where, which one were you going to bring up, John? Uh, Revelation 14, of course, this is talking about the Antichrist. But, right. Um, 14, um, verse 10 and 11. Mm -hmm. He himself shall also drink to the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of the native nation, and shall be tormented with fire, and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment, yeah, this is those taking mark of the beast. Yes. No rest day or night. No rest means no rest, right? Yes. Another scripture you could use is Revelation 20 and verse 10. Um, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast in a lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yes. So it's good to have these scriptures ready for those who are being led astray and who believe lies and those who are trying to promote these lies. Very good. Yes. That's good uh, work of the context there. 
Can, uh, going back to Matthew 10 now, can you deny Christ by simply remaining quiet about him before men? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did Christ come to bring a sword or peace? So does this mean that Christ didn't come to help bring peace between sinners and God? No. What, what does it mean then that he came to bring a sword and not peace? Yes, very good. So the, the peace that Jesus is talking about here, he didn't come to bring, was harmony between people who are on different sides of the issue when it comes to his teaching. So he didn't come to bring harmony in that sense because you've got to choose this day whom you're going to serve. And when you choose to serve Christ, you're naturally going to have division with other people. And who should we expect to be divided from, according to Jesus? Just strangers? Who should we expect division from? Yeah, unbelievers, yep. But more specifically than that, who, who do you say we should expect division from? Friends, people who are closest to us. You know, so when those things happen, we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. It fulfills what Jesus says. That those who are closest to us will reject us. The only question becomes, which side of the coin are you going to be on? The one does the rejecting, the one does the preaching of the truth. What must we do in order to be worthy to follow Jesus according to Matthew 10? Pick up your cross. What does that mean, Daniel? Denying your really desires, yep. What was the uh, what was the cross an instrument of, Daniel? What was it used for? The actual cross. What did people use it for? Jenna? Yeah, for death. Yeah, so when we follow Jesus and we take up a cross, it means it's death to what we want to do and life to what he wants us to do. Taking up the cross means, and like Leonard, Ra- uh, like uh, Leonard Ra- I haven't quoted A. W. Tozer about this, but what Tozer said, A. W. Tozer, a, a good preacher from this past century, he said, "Is one thing you knew about a man who was had a cross on his back, walking out of the city, he wasn't coming back." And that's the kind of mindset we should have. Don't turn back. Put her hand to a plow and don't look back. Don't be like Lot's wife, who looked back upon where she came from but going and doing God's will. <clears throat> so what else, what else does God ex- Christ expect us to do to, in order to follow him, to be worthy of following him? From Matthew 10. Yeah, give your whole life for Christ's sake. So whoever saves his life will what? Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake and the Gospels will do what? They will save it. 
And you also must love him more than everyone else. More than your father, more than your mother, more than your siblings, more than your wife, more than your husband, more than your children, more than your family. You have to love him more than anything else. And like you just said in another, another situation in Luke, he said, when you're comparing your love for God to love to others, I'll be like comparing hatred to love. That's what it should be like. Comparing hatred to love. Okay, Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Did John the Baptist doubt who Jesus was? Why? Yeah, and we, and we really don't know exactly, but I think those are good thoughts on it. And I would, I would only add to that maybe he had a misconception about who the Messiah would, what the Messiah would do too. Uh, a lot of the Jews thought that Jesus was coming to deliver them from Roman oppression, and that he was going to install his kingdom right then. You know, so maybe John the Baptist had that wrong too. I mean, if he's the he's the the herald of the king, surely he doesn't not going to be in prison, right? Well, this is the king we're talking about here. This is his right hand man. Surely he shouldn't be in prison. What did Jesus say to John's disciples that they should tell John in order to prove that he is the Messiah? Yeah, he performed miracles. And the gospel was preached, he said. So basically he's saying, look at my fruit. Go bring this back to him. Show him what I'm doing. Jesus in Matthew eleven fourteen said this about John. He is Elijah who is to come. What did Jesus mean when he said that? Did he mean that John was literally Elijah? Came in the spirit and power Elijah. And that John was a type of the Elijah who will come in the end, and therefore Jesus was pointing to himself as the who? Messiah. That's right. Why did Jesus pronounce woes or rebuke Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? Yeah, they saw most of his mighty works were done there. And he still didn't repent. And they still didn't repent. Who would be more tolerable for in the day of judgment than the people of these cities who didn't repent? Sodom. Yeah. Tyre and Sidon. So that's also who it says. Who are Gentile cities. And what principle does this passage teach then? Yeah. Knowledge equals accountability. And greater knowledge not obeyed equals greater judgment. Yes, greater judgment. So if that's, uh, that's true, where else besides this passage would you find that in the Bible, that teaching? Because you have people going around saying that babies are sinners and toddlers are sinners and that they're going to hell and all this other nonsense. I mean, one way you can combat that is by showing this principle in Scripture. And what's what's another passage? Is there any other passage you can think of off the top of your head that that we can go to that would talk about that? Yes, that's good. 
I don't remember that one either, either. That's that's one I didn't even think of. That's a good one. Yes. Uh, Matthew uh, 10, 14 through 15. We already passed by it. But it says, uh, Whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when he when you depart from the house or city, I'm talking to the disciples now, shake off the dust from your feet. Surely I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, day of judgment, than for that city. Uh, you also see Matthew 12. So, it's all, so if you get this Matthew 10 through 12 thing here, these three passages, you would have a good start to combat this idea. Uh, Matthew 12, 41 through 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation, condemn it because they repented the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So if you just use those passages, that would be good. There's also John 9, where Jesus said, if you, had, if you claim to see, therefore your sin remains. If you are blind, you would have no sin. That's John 9, verses 39 through 41. Um, you also have James 4.17, which says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay. And then another one you can write down if you want to is 2 Peter 2.21 which talks about it would be better for someone not to have known their way of righteousness than to have known it and to depart from it. Okay. It better to have not have known. Okay, now we're in Matthew 12. Is it a sin according to the law of Moses, you know, the law found in the Old Testament scriptures, is it a sin to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath? It is not. It is not a sin. Why did the Pharisees think it was a sin? You have an answer, Malachi? Very good, Malachi. They consider it to be work. You're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Um, and they were also, of course, adding their own specifics and rules to what was found in Scripture that was not actually found in Scripture. And so in doing this and considering it a sin, what were they actually doing? Adding to Scripture. And Jesus says they were condemning the guiltless in verse 7. So they were being sinful in themselves. Uh, so it's, it's just as wrong to make something sinful that actually isn't sinful than to make something not sinful that actually is sinful. They're both equally as bad. So we don't add to the Word of God or take away from the Word of God. And so, you know, in our, in our holiness camps, you know, we're real big on obeying the Bible completely. But we must, must not go beyond that and make things sins that really aren't sins. That's the danger. And... This is part of the problem with some people. They'll make things sinful that really aren't sinful. And I don't know if we talked about this in fellowship or not, because I did a video on it recently about perfection and how sins of omission and how people will say, well, if you're not rejoicing in God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, then you're sinning. If you're not praying 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you're sinning. Uh, if you're not preaching, you know, that's, this is kind of the standard they set up. But if, if that is true, then who else is a sinner? Jesus is a sinner. Is Jesus always praying? Is Jesus always preaching? Is Jesus always rejoicing? 
No, he wasn't always doing those things. Was he sleeping at sometimes? Hey, he was sleeping in the boat. We know of one time he slept at least. He slept in that boat, right? Was he preaching while he was sleeping? Was he praying while he was sleeping? Was he rejoicing while he was sleeping? So you have these people. Go ahead, brother. What did you guys say? Well, he wept for Jerusalem, yes. But, there, I mean, there's many times where he, we're not doing these things. And so things that you're not supposed to do and you do do, you know if you do it at all, it's sinful. But a couple of things you're supposed to do, it's a matter of time restraints. And you're going to be accountable to God for what you do with your time. But just because I'm praying, which means I'm not preaching, does not mean I'm sinning. Or just because I'm preaching, means that I'm not praying, does not mean I'm sinning. You know, or just because I don't vocalize after every morsel of food I put in my mouth, oh, thank you, God, oh, thank you, God, doesn't mean I'm sinning. Jesus didn't do that. And uh, we have people who are turning aside to this nonsense. And people saying, oh, we, we all, we're all always prideful, at least to some degree. And therefore, we're all always sinners. Where does the Bible say that? Yeah. Or saying that you are living holy is prideful. Now, there may be some people who are saying they're living holy, but they're not actually living holy. I agree with that. Maybe lots of people who are like that. Maybe people who said they hadn't sinned in 20 years who are lying about it. But that does not change the fact that we have the ability to obey God and God does not make it impossible to obey Him. That's basically what they're saying here. Is you, if, if you believe in that position, you're saying God has set it up in such a way where He's made it impossible for you to obey Him. Impossible for you to do what He's commanded you to do. And what does it say about God? It doesn't sound like a just God, does it? He's demanding the impossible and He doesn't give you the ability to perform it. What two situations, going back to Matthew 12 here, what two situations from the Old Testament did Jesus use to prove to the Pharisees that what the disciples were doing was not sinful? Okay, that's good. But he gave two specific examples from the Old Testament to prove the disciples were not sinning. Right there in Matthew 12. What's that? Hosea 6 6. Uh, no. That's what he's quoting from in verse 7. But one example he gave was David. What did David do? Was it lawful for him to eat showbread? So, what law is Jesus purporting here by saying? David broke this law, but he still ate. It's a law of love. See, David was hungry. Does God want David to be star to starve? The law of love is being promoted here. The disciples are hungry, they ate. Even though the Pharisees perceived this to be sinful and working, even though it wasn't. What, who else did Jesus talk about? The priest work on the Sabbath, in the temple. They did stuff on Sabbath in the temple. That was more uh, physically intensive than plucking a head of grain, like the disciples were doing. And he said, yet a greater than the temple is here. So the ironic thing about this is, who are the, who are the Pharisees trying to correct here? The Lord of the Sabbath. They're trying to tell him what he could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Isn't that ironic? 
Was it unlawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? And Jenna just gave this. What comparison did Jesus use to prove this? The sheep. If your sheep fell into distance, Sabbath, would you get it out? Yeah, are men more important than sheep? It seemed like the Pharisees were the tree huggers. Save the whales. Kill the babies, right? They kind of esteemed creation, these animals in this creation, more than they esteemed the one who's made in God's image. And when Jesus did heal the man, uh, what did they want to do to him? Yeah, they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. When Jesus healed the blind and mute man, what power did the Pharisees accuse him of healing people in? The ruler of the demons. If you're not with Jesus, who are you? You're against Jesus. Yes, you're for Satan. If you don't gather with him, what are you doing? Scattering abroad. Is someone a good tree or a bad tree by birth? Or, oh, by choice. Very good. So it's not involuntary on their part. It's voluntary. They choose to do that. So no one's, someone's not a good tree or a bad tree because of what Adam did. Or because of what their mom and dad did or their relatives did. Who what determines whether someone is a good or a bad tree? Each individual. Can someone change from being a bad tree to a good tree? And whose responsibility is to do this? Yeah, each person. Each person. What kind of people seek after a sign? Evil and adulterous people. Who would rise up and judge, figuratively speaking here anyway, the people who Jesus was preaching to that rejected his message, according to verses 41 to 42? Queen of the South is one of them, and who else? People of Nineveh. Why? Who's a greater preacher, Jonah or Jesus? Who's more wise, Solomon or Jesus? There you go. What can potentially happen to someone who's had a demon driven out of them, and yet they don't repent and become born again? Yeah, come back seven times. Worse than they were at first. Who are Jesus' mother's mother and brothers, his true fan members? Okay. Once you do the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus said. What was the original reason that Jesus began to speak in parables? Was that really John? Because the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. What were the three purposes for speaking in parables? Keep it from who? And who, other, who else didn't care about the truth? He wasn't receiving the truth. Anyone who would not receive and didn't care about the truth, it was to keep it from them. What else was the second purpose for it? If someone didn't understand it, there's really two choices they could make. They could, oh, I don't care, and not receive it. Or they could do what? Seek more understanding. 
So it makes a dividing line between those who really want the truth and those who don't want the truth. Those who want the truth, they seek after more. More understanding. Those who don't want the truth, they say, like, ah, who cares? And what's the third purpose of it? Fulfills prophecy. Fulfills prophecy. According to Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus quoted in Matthew 13, who closed the eyes of those who didn't understand the parables? They did it to themselves. So what does that tell you? That tells you that they had the ability to understand before Jesus spoke in parables. This comes against directly the doctrine of total inability that Calvinism teaches. They had the ability to understand. And Jesus did this, and they closed their own eyes. The Bible says. How many of the four grounds in the parable of the sower truly believed? There are four total. How many believed? Truly. Three. Three truly believed. How many of the four grounds on the parable of sower fell away from the faith? Of those three. How many of those fell away? Two. That's right. How do you know this? What language do you see in this parable that tells you that? Yep. One had us choked out by the cares of the world, and it became unfruitful. This means it was fruitful at some point in time. What about the, uh, well, why wasn't the first soil saved? Yeah, the birds came and took it. The devil snatched away what was in his heart. Yeah. That's why the devil could come and snatch it away. Because their heart was so hard. But the second soil, in verse 20, says it endured for a little while. For a while. But what made it fall away? Tribulation and persecution. Yeah. So it comes back to the plant. Yes. Very good. And um, is the seed different in any of these situations? So, so the explanation couldn't be that the second and third soils, which you know fell away from the faith, heard a false gospel, and they really weren't saved in the first place. That couldn't be the explanation of it. Who, what is the field or the kingdom of heaven in the parable of the wheat and tares? Is it the church or is it the whole world? Yeah, the whole world. Who sowed the tares into the field or the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, the devil, the enemy. Jesus told the angels not to gather the tares just yet, because in doing so they might uproot the wheat as well. Was this said because they looked so much alike or they acted so much alike? 
Oh, it wasn't. No. How do we know that? Right, that's what Jesus is saying, and people will use that to say, well, the reason why you pull up some wheat with theirs, they look so much alike and they act so much alike, they're just like each other, and therefore it may be some new converts, you know, who are still living on godly lives, and that's why the, he told the angels not to do that. But how do we know that can't be true, that the, that the issue is not they look a lot alike? But how would they know the difference? How would they know there was tares there in the first place? Why would they even come to Jesus and say, uh, look, uh, there's, there's tares in your field. Did you not plant good seed? How would they even know that if they couldn't tell the difference? They could tell the difference. That's the only reason they came to him. He said, the enemy has done this. Uh, but when, when is the gathering finally going to happen? At, gar at gathering time, at the harvest time, at the end. At the end. Uh, so maybe the reason why has nothing to do with looking alike. I mean, we've talked about this before, but going back to the field, using the natural analogy he's using here, when you pull up, there's roots there, you pull it up, the things around are going to be pulled up with it, naturally speaking. But practically, I think why he's saying that is because he wants to give them more time. Because spiritually speaking, can tares become wheat? I used to be a tear. Not anymore. So he's being patient with them long-suffering towards them, wanting them to come to repentance. Are the tares immediately thrown into the furnace of fire when they are binded in bundles? I went to a lot of other passages with this question. referring to that that's good uh, I think the they yeah, miscommunicated there what I'm referring to is at the end when they finally are the angels do come and separate the wheat from the shaft or the wheat from the tares are the tares immediately thrown into the furnace of fire right then no they're not when are the sinners finally thrown into the furnace or lake of fire? At the day. When does that happen? How long after Christ comes back does that happen? At least a thousand years, right? We have the millennial reign. And Satan deceives the nations for a short period of time. And then comes judgment day. It's only then that people are thrown into the furnace of fire. After the white throne judgment. How many brothers did Jesus have? Four. How many sisters did he have? We don't know. We know he had sisters. Why couldn't Jesus do many mighty works in Nazareth?
because of unbelief, the people's unbelief. Are you telling me that, that people can hinder God from doing what he wants to do? That man's free will can stop God's sovereignty at times? Sounds like it to me. What did John the Baptist preaching cost him literally? Mm -hmm. What did John the Baptist rebuke Herod for? Taking his brother's wife as his own and well, no. That happened while he was still he was already in prison by then. It says we went to the Luke account, it says for all the evils he was doing. Not just for that. For all the evils he was doing. He was an equal opportunity rebuker. He wasn't just rebuking for one sin, but for all of Herod's sin. How did it come about that John the Baptist was beheaded? How did this happen? Right. Now, why did he promise that to Her Herodias' daughter? Oh. Now, it doesn't say that there, but why do you think he was pleased, Daniel? What do you think he was doing? Yeah. And not just him, but all the men who were there with him. So he promised her up to half the kingdom, and she went to her mother, and she said, well, demand John about his head here on the platter. When the disciples wanted to send away the 5,000 men plus women and children, we're in Matthew 14, by the way, now. Uh, when the disciples wanted to send away the 5,000 men plus women and children so they could get something to eat, what did Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. And so what was, he, what was Jesus demanding them to do? Yeah, but was that possible that they have the food for that? So he's demanding the impossible. The impossible. But did God provide a way for the impossible to be done? Yeah. What did they bring to him? Five loaves and two fish, and how much did they have left after everyone was filled? Twelve baskets full. Do you think Jesus was whispering to this potentially fifteen to 20,000 people? Yeah, I mean, I'm not whispering here. We have, what, what, 20 people? 25 maybe? I don't know. Okay, the disciples were rowing on the, the sea, three to four miles out into the sea. Jesus came to them between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. And what almost happened as they were rowing and struggling? What almost happened? Well, it passed right by them. What spiritual application do we make regarding that? In the midst of our troubles, our struggles in life, don't let them pass you by. Don't focus on our troubles. Focus on Jesus. Jesus. Who else walked on water besides Jesus? Why did Peter begin to sink? Yeah. Look at the boisterous wind. Oh no, Lord, look at the world around me. And what happened when Jesus got into the boat? The wind ceased. The wind ceased. And what was their response to that? They worshiped and called him Son of God.
Should you say, no, 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 I'm not, don't worship me. I'm not the son of God. Do you do that? Sounds like he's greater than an angel to me. Greater than any other created being to me. Okay. Well, we reviewed all. And uh, hopefully these reviews were good for your memory to remember these things and these things in your head. Does anyone have any questions about anything today? Anything you want to add? Does anyone have an interpretation of that from Eli? Eli, you're out of order. Nopey, nopey, nopey. You don't have any questions, Eli? No questions? All right.